This is the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore. We welcome David Fisk to the podcast. Hello, David. Hello. David is a retired librarian. He now researches and writes about lost history. The uh, historians uh, have commended his work on Solomon Northup, the man who was kidnapped and sold into slavery, as depicted in the film, 12 Years a Slave. David Fisk has also given uh, many presentations on Northup, maintains a website about uh, Solomon Northup. And David has researched and written about other intriguing people and incidents from New York and New England. And we're going to talk with him about one of those stories on the podcast today, a story that I saw in the New York history blog describing Charles Zimmy's epic swim from Albany to Manhattan. Who was Charles Zimmy, David? Well, Zimmy uh, was from the Chicago area, and the documents are not uh, consistent on whether he was born in Chicago or born in Russia. But uh, his real name probably was, his real name was something like Zebelman. Um, the newspapers through the years gave all different versions of it. Um, but anyway, he seemed to like Zimmy because I think it was easier to remember. But he had, as a boy, uh, fallen under a streetcar in Chicago, mm. and his legs were injured and had to be amputated. So he had uh, really no legs. He had just uh, uh, some very short stumps below his hips. So I mean, he was lost his legs above the knee, which is right. in. Okay. And uh, but uh, he didn't seem to let it bother him too much. He worked as a as a newsboy. And uh, in 1909, he went around Christmas time and demonstrated some of his uh, athletic abilities to some boys who were being held at basically a center for uh, a home for juvenile delinquents uh, to cheer them up and gave them some advice and so forth. Uh, he got around. He would uh, sit himself on a roller skate and push him around with his arms, push himself around with his arms. Mm-hmm. And he had, as he got older, he had a uh, automobile that was adapted so that he could run the controls, you know, even without legs. So he would drive himself around and he could get around pretty well and got into show business because he got into uh, swimming and would act in vaudeville shows and so forth and that type of thing and uh, toured, the, toured the world, really, doing shows. And in connection with his swimming, didn't he say that it, it, his disability was really not a disability in swimming? Right. Well, uh, uh, he said that uh, as far as swimming goes, that having legs, legs were just dead weight, according to him. And that actually, because he didn't have legs, his, his heart didn't have to pump blood to his legs. So therefore, it was easier for his heart to... to keep his circulation up in the rest of his body. Uh, and apparently it also made him, you know, more more buoyant. And uh, during his Hudson River swim, there was a boat that accompanied him uh, by a man from the Albany-Troy area. Mm-hmm. And uh, he later on turned over his, his log book to the newspaper, so it was published and he said that when uh, Zimmy needed to get uh, fed, 
he was actually able to, because of his body shape, he was actually able to be upright in the water so that they could, they could hand food over to him while he was really? kind of upright in the water. He, some people described his being basically like a cork. <laughs> uh, so anyway, he, uh, he'd been touring the world, and he came back to the United States and apparently wanted to get some publicity for himself and decided that he was going to swim from Albany to New York City. Uh, so he uh, started out, he had, as I say, there was a boat that accompanied him, and there were a bunch of young men from the Albany area who were lifeguards. They would, they would keep uh, track of him, and they would go out, usually a couple would go out in a rowboat and stay near him to make sure that mm-hmm. he would be okay. And, and what year was this that he this did this? This was 1937. Do you, do, can you do the math? I mean, how, how old was he when he did this? Uh, he was in his 40s. He was in his mid-40s. Hmm. Um, he was born in 1897, so let's see, 37. That, well, that would make him about 40 years old. Mm-hmm. Now, this uh, um, wasn't his only long-distance swim, right? In fact, he tried some long-distance swims that he, he couldn't do, notably maybe the English Channel. Yeah, a lot of people at those days were doing trying to do the English Channel, and uh, he never quite quite made that. One time, the the conditions were just too rough, and he got... He got within like eight miles of France and just had to give up. And another time he was stung by a jellyfish, and that kind of uh, put an end to another attempt. So he never was quite able to do that. But he had in uh, Hawaii in 1931, he had set a record for the continuous time spent in the water. They had a big uh, natatorium there that was a saltwater pool. And he swam in there for like uh, 100 hours straight without without leaving the water. Uh, one of his trademarks was he liked to smoke cigars, and even while he was swimming, he would uh, smoke cigars. And uh, when he did his Albany swim or Albany to New York swim, the boat that accompanied him had a supply of 200 cigars uh, for him to use during <laughs> during the trip, of which he. Uh, Afterwards, the captain said that he had uh, actually smoked uh, 36 cigars uh, and also drank uh, 60 cups of coffee during during the trip. My goodness. And how long is this di- distance? I'm trying to remember my throughway signs. It's over 100 miles, isn't it? It's Well, it's, it's roughly it's about 145 miles. Uh, sometimes newspapers and things sometimes say it was 153 miles. So it kind of figures, depends how you figure it, I guess. But, of course, there is tidal action in the Hudson River, so that there were times when he would get pushed back and have to you know, swim back through water he'd already swum. Uh, so it actually was, in terms of miles, it would have been much more than that, but there's really no way to, to figure it exactly other than to know that he did mm. more than the actual mileage. I mean, it's a lot longer than swimming the English Channel, right? Yeah, uh, that's like what twenty-five miles or something. something like that. Now, and you also you uh, tell this anecdote how when he started in connection with the cigars, he was it he was smoking a cigar when he he was uh, he had somebody or a couple of guys in a sense throw him into the river and he lost that cigar. Right. He well he jumped in from the uh, there was a Albany yacht basin at Albany down at basically at the foot of uh, State Street Hill which isn't there anymore. But they had like a nice nice dock, and they had a, a clubhouse for the yacht club and everything. And uh, so uh, 
a doctor at the yacht club had checked him out and said he was okay to do the trip. So then he went out and jumped in the water. He lit a, lit a cigar and jumped in the water. And then he kind of bobbles as I say, he was kind of like a cork. So uh, the cigar, he lost his cigar right off the bat. But he knew he had 200 more on the boat, so <laughs> right. he wasn't too worried about it. Yeah. And when he started out, it was going it was going kind of slow, uh, you, you write. And right. they got, got down by Kaksaki, and some of his supporters were encouraging him to give up. Yeah, they, I mean, they thought he was going to make a lot more progress in the first day. Uh, so they just figured, well, it's, it, it, there's no way he's going to be able to do this. Uh, uh, and his intention was to stay in the water the whole time, and every indication is that he, that he did that. Uh, they would put grease on his bike to help insulate him from the cold water. Uh, and during the course of the trip, they had to apply the grease several times, but altogether there was like uh, 70 pounds of grease that they put on him to keep him from getting too cold. And they would also hand him hot water bottles from time to time to help keep his body temperature up. And uh, But anyway, he refused to give up. He said he was going to make it to the George Washington Bridge and uh, and kept going. Hmm. What, what kind of hazards did he face on this swim? Well, there were a number of things that the... The boat that accompanied him was named the Penguin. It had been built by this man from uh, the time who lived in Rensselaer, whose name was uh, Wilbur S. Uh, Tucker. And uh, he noted that there were several times when, uh, like, ships would come and they wouldn't see this little guy in the water there. Uh, and there was one time that the boat came really near to where Zimmy was swimming. So the people that run the Penguin shouted out to the other boat, said, watch out, there's a swimmer in the water, because they were afraid he was going to get run over. Mm. And there was another time when a standard oil ship was coming up and uh, made like a big swell, and it pushed Zimmy over to the shore, and then, you know, he kind of got washed back over into the middle of the river, and he kind of got shaken up pretty badly, but not so much that he wasn't able to continue. Mm. Uh, and then also there was a period of a couple of days when uh, Captain Tucker says that he wasn't really able to keep his food down. Mm. So you can just imagine undertaking this kind of a physical challenge and losing, you know, your nutrition be- from from, uh, from vomiting. Uh, but then when he got closer to New York City, he really perked him up and he, he was pretty sure he was going to make it. So he uh, felt a lot better by that. But as he got closer to New York City. Or are there others who have done the Albany to New York swim? Yeah, I looked into this, this some, and uh, turns out there were. Um, in the 1920s, there were quite a few, and then one of the accounts in the New York Times makes reference to a man named Cooper who had swum from Albany to New York City in around 1896. But it didn't really give much details about it other than it took him 11 days. Uh, now, the other people that did it, they, unlike Zimmy, would not stay in the water the whole time. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that Cooper in 1896 did either. If it took him 11 days, he wouldn't have been able to stay in the water for that long. Uh, that- but in 1921, there was a woman uh, from Denmark whose name at the time was uh, Millie uh, Gade, but... Um, she ended up marrying uh, a man who had assisted her 
during the trip, so her name changed later on to uh, uh, her last name changed to Corson. But um, she had been a, a big swimming star in Denmark and then came to the United States. And uh, the difference with the other people, though, was that they wouldn't stay in the water the whole time. Mm-hmm. They would usually get onto a boat to sleep or to rest or to wait out, you know, the wait till the tide changed to be more favorable to mm-hmm. words. It took him about six days? Yeah, it took him just over six days, yep. And also, and, so I'm, I'm sorry to you know, step on your answer there, but when he got to the end, uh, it was sort of, I don't know if it's confusing, but he had gone under the George Washington Bridge at one point and uh, reached his intended stopping point, which was the 125th Street ferry landing, but then he was dragged past it by the, the current. Right. He, uh, uh, <clears throat> the current dragged him further than that, another mile or two, so he ended up getting as far, really as far as 98th Street. But then the penguin that was with him, the boat with the penguin, uh, <clears throat> came down and uh, they pulled him into a rope, one of the rowboats that they would use to go out and uh, and help protect him and so forth uh, and give him his food and so forth. And then put him on the board, the penguin, and brought him back up uh to where there was an ambulance waiting up. Uh, the newspaper says 129th Street, but I don't know. I'm not sure if that was a typo or not, but anyway, somewhere around that area. Uh, but before he uh, would go away in the ambulance, there was a crowd of like several hundred people waiting there to watch him. So he jumped back in the water and did some of his diving and swimming around really? and stuff for them before he would go to the hospital. As, as far as you know, what kind of shape was he in? Or was he injured? Well, no, he was he was very tired. Uh, he was on in Harlem Hospital only for one night, and the doctors were a little bit concerned because his his temperature was like 100 degrees, so he was running a slight fever. But other than that, they didn't really see any problems. Uh, but a bunch of, bunch of his friends came to the hospital to see him, and then once they got there, he decided he was, he didn't want to stay in the hospital anymore, so he he checked himself out despite doctors being a little bit concerned. But he said he felt fine, and he went back. And actually, at the time, he said for his next feat, he was planning to swim uh, between um, Florida and Cuba. Uh, and although he made some plans to do that, it it never it never happened. Things just didn't really come come mm-hmm. together for him to do that. Mm-hmm. I, uh, in the uh, piece that you had in the New York History blog, I saw a comment from Harold Johnson, who's been on the program. He's written this. Um, a historical novel about early New York, New York 1609. But ironically, uh, as you may know, Harold Johnson's a swimmer. Right. And, and he had won a race years ago swimming around Manhattan. Uh, and he uh, complimented you on the story, but he wondered why Zimmy chose Albany to New York City for the for the feat, you know, for, to, to do. Like, he thought he would have got more attention, which I guess was the point of it all, if he swam around Manhattan. Uh, well, people had already been doing the circumnavigating Manhattan anyway, uh, and I think part of it was because uh, there, there were other people in the 1920s that had swum from Albany to to Manhattan, uh, 
and they usually would would make it to the battery. And Zimmy had hoped to make it to the battery, but he was just too tired by the time he got got uh, towards the end, so he didn't quite make that. But uh, so he probably uh, knew that these other people, um, one whom I talked about, had already done the Albany to to New York swim and had that in mind that he was going to, you know, beat, beat their record and so forth, which he, uh, which he did do. Of course, the other thing is that they, they would come out of the water to rest and so forth. Whereas he was, would not. he could, he could sleep, he could just lean back and, and float on the water. And the men who were on the, uh, the penguin were amazed at how well he could sleep just, just laying in the water like that. And they were there observing that so they could right. do something if, I don't know, he started to sink or something. Right. Um, Did did he make, I mean, this I presume was a career move, as they say. Uh, How did he pay for, like, uh, all these people that accompanied him in that boat? Was that all, were they all volunteers? Or how how did money change hands with this? Just just like today, there would be sponsors for these kind of athletic events. So you'd have to get that lined up and, and, uh, uh, that probably was a factor in why he was he never did the the swim to Cuba. Uh, and later on, he also planned to swim the Chesapeake Bay, but that fell through because he just wasn't able to arrange any sponsors to to, to fund it. Um, but there would be prizes, and and uh, in the case of some of the swimmers that did the uh, Albany to New York swim. Uh, there was like one man who was a banker who who basically funded the funded the the effort uh, with the idea of being that. And actually, he also uh, um, <clears throat> made travel arrangements uh, so that the person could go and try to swim the English Channel as well. Um, so there were, you know, there was a lot of there was a certain amount of funding available for these types of things. And the other thing was that uh, a lot of these people would be able to appear in vaudeville shows and so forth, just demonstrating uh, their their swimming and, and so forth, so that in the long term you could, you know, do pretty well because you could get into into show business by having done some of these. Some of these, these right. Uh, David Fisk is with us, a historian uh, um, about a story he's written about Ch- Charles Zimmy and his swim from Albany to Manhattan back in 1937. What did Zimmy do after uh, finishing the swim, or what was the story of the rest of his life? Right. Well, in the 1940s, he was uh, in Hawaii. Uh, a lot of the time he lived on the West Coast in, in like Long Beach, but he would go over to Hawaii to do some of his uh, endurance swims. So there was a newspaper report in 1940 that he was involved in some kind of a circus in Honolulu. Uh, And then in 1941, he decided to try to set another record by continuously swimming in the natatorium in Honolulu, which he did. So then he stayed in the water for over a week, which even beat his own record of having been in the water for over six days when he did the Albany to New York swim. Mm-hmm. So he set another record there, uh, and then he moved to uh, Norfolk, Virginia, and he ran some establishments there, some hot dog stands and some uh, beer parlors, and eventually a delicatessen. 
uh, and kind of lived uh, a different kind of life, although he still would go and do demonstrations for wounded uh, veterans from World War II. So he'd go to uh, uh, hospitals where they had veterans and would do some of his swimming demonstrations for them. Uh, and he, uh, <clears throat> in 1940, he also was planning to swim the Chesapeake Bay, but as I said, that didn't happen because of uh, lack of funding that was available. Um, so he kept himself busy with this. He liked to tell about how he was able to keep order in the bars that he ran, because for one thing, he was a good height. If somebody was acting up, he was a good height to punch him right in the stomach. I see. And if that didn't work, he would grab their legs and bring them down to the ground. And then he said, once they were on the floor, they were my size, and I had no trouble handling them. Probably so. Uh, Did he have children? Yeah, he had a couple of children that were born in uh, in New York. Uh, and I think there are descendants around because there's some information on some of the genealogy uh, services about him that includes like clippings and things like that, and I didn't really track it down complete, but I think that they're probably descendants of of some of his children, and uh, uh, so finally he died from uh, basically a stroke in uh, in 1952, and is buried there in in uh, uh, Norfolk, Virginia. Mm-hmm. There was 52 that he died. You said right? 1952. Yep. Yeah. <clears throat> And had he been married? Uh, yeah, he was married a couple times. I, the the woman that was a uh, mother of his children, I think they, not sure if she died or if they got divorced or what, but uh, there's a woman in Norfolk who's buried next to him, or with a different name, I guess that's his, his second wife. Uh, and uh, he was Jewish, too, because... Uh, um, the story is, and it's a little bit unconfirmed, but the story is that his parents were had left Russia to escape uh, anti-Semitism mm-hmm. there. And in the 1910 census for Chicago, it lists a Charles Zebelman, Zebelman as being in the Cook County Jail. And it didn't tell what charges, but it did give his occupation as being a vaudeville actor. So I'm pretty sure it's the same, same, same person. And there his first language is given as Yiddish. And the tombstone that you can see on Find a Grave has a Star of David and also some Hebrew writing on it. So uh, there's some books that people have done about, you know, famous uh, Jewish athletes and so forth, and he's included in some of those. Mm-hmm. Charles Zimmy. Um, what intrigues you? I mean, I, I found it a fascinating story, and to some extent with the local history stories that I write, I look for things like this. I mean, what is it that intrigues you about this story? I mean, maybe it's kind of a stupid question because we've been talking about it for 25 minutes. Right. Uh, well, I, I just chanced upon it when I, I look at old newspapers a lot in these various databases, and I happened to see something about it. And then I was kind of intrigued just because the the depth of his achievement. Uh, and then I looked up, and there there are some articles about his his Hudson River swim on various web pages, but they, the people lose track of him afterwards. They don't really know what happened to him. So I, I always see that as a challenge as well. Like I got to find out more about what happened to him if I can. Uh, so if uh, I wouldn't have written the article probably if I hadn't been able to find out 
you know, that he moved to uh, Virginia and, and when mm-hmm. he died and so mm-hmm. forth, because that was kind of uh, told the rest of the story. Do, do you hope to do more with this story? I mean, or has it already been out in other ways than New York History blog? Well, I probably have done as much as I'm going to do with it for, for now, okay. although that it's kind of interesting, the uh, the history of Hudson River swimmers, I guess, uh, is something that doesn't seem to be really... Well, one thing that just popped into my head, 1937, right? I mean, the Hudson River must have been kind of dirty. Uh, well, I think, yeah, I think most water in the United States is probably pretty dirty by, by our standards. Uh, there was a man in 1988 who swam from... Albany to, and he went all the way to the Statue of Liberty. His name was uh, Skip Storch. And he had been someone who checked the quality of the water in the river. So he wanted to do the swim to show how much improvement there had been to the water. And he said he would actually drink the water from the Hudson River uh, until he got close to New York City, and then it was too too messy to drink. Right. but he, unfortunately, his reputation kind of got solid because a year ago he was accused of having sexually abused an underage girl, mm-hmm. and he eventually pled guilty, and last month he was sentenced to seven years in prison. And right now he's at Fishkill, where I don't think he's doing any long-distance swimming. <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> uh, David Fisk uh, has been telling us about the long-distance swim of Charles Zimmy, uh, six days in the water in 1937. This is the Historian's Podcast. What else are you, are you, what projects are you working on now? I had several things I wanted to work on, but then something kind of fell in my lap because the, uh, the company that published my books about Salma Northup uh, is doing a new series where they have historians look at how different eras of American history are portrayed uh, by Hollywood. Mm-hmm. So they uh, recruited me to do a book that would be called uh, American Slavery on Film that would be coming out probably about a year from now. And uh, we'll cover, of course, 12 Years of Slave and then some of the other films that, that dealt with slavery in some way. Very very good. Um, and you, you live in Boston Spa? That's right. And weren't you, were you the historian there or... Uh, no, uh, no, I thought, we, but I do know. But you've written a, a, about Boston Spa quite a quite a bit, right? Yeah. Well, the there was a weekly newspaper that the Saratoga did for a while called Boston Spa Life, and they would have some local history stories in there. So I did quite a number of stories for them, which are still gotcha. The, the publication ceased, but the articles are still available on the on the website, and I did do a little like walking tour book highlighting historical things from Boston Spa that's called uh, Boston Spa History Walk Around uh, that they have uh, they have copies of it at Brookside, which is the headquarters for the Saratoga County Historical Society in Boston Spa. And, of course, it's available, on, you know, through Amazon and, and so forth. So I've, I've done some local research, but I, I, I don't have – I haven't done anything – comprehensive Boston, Boston Spa, I, I kind of find these little stories that are kind of overlooked or mm-hmm. or buildings that people see and walk by that they don't really know what 
what it's about. Well, interesting stuff, David. You've been listening to David Fisk, author of a New York history blog post on Charles Zimmy's 1937 Hudson River Swim from Albany to New York City. I'm Bob Cudmore. I do hope you'll uh, remember our GoFundMe campaign for the Historian's Podcast. We welcome your donations at GoFundMe.com forward slash Historians 2018. Or if you'd rather not donate online with your credit card, you can send a check made out to me, Bob Cudmore, 125 Horseman Drive, Scotia, New York. You've been listening to the Historian's Podcast. I'm Bob Cudmore.